This morning, we come to the conclusion of our series, Richland Exists Through the Lens of the Book of Acts, Through the Acts of the Apostles. We've, we've been walking through how do we join our existence statement here on the wall, how do we join that existence statement with our journey through the Book of Acts as we learned about the early church, how do we put those two things together? And so we've been walking through that series. We're going to finish that this morning. We're going to look at what it means to meet with and to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then next week, we'll jump into a new series. As I've mentioned previously, we're going to to take the knowledge that we have of, of the life and ministry of Paul. We're in a unique place right now after we have walked through the book of Acts for a little over a year. We, we know the missionary journeys that Paul took. We know kind of the, 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 the path that his life went through. We have a unique knowledge now that we haven't had before and probably will forget for the future. So we have this one moment in time where we will kind of remember what we've studied. And so we're going to take this moment and we're going to now look in broad overviews at the epistles that Paul has written, the letters that he wrote to the churches and then I think we'll, we'll even include the pastoral epistles at the end. And we'll walk through why did Paul write these and what was he writing them for. We're not going to spend a long, long time in those books, one to two weeks probably in those books. And so we're just going to give some broad overviews. But it will help us, I think, to have that historical knowledge of, of where did Paul go and why did he go there. And then in the midst of that knowledge, take why did he write these books to these churches. And so... Uh, we'll start that next week with that look at the epistles that Paul has written. Today, I want to conclude this series on why we exist as we look at the book of Acts. And we have already walked through that we exist to magnify Jesus. We exist so that people might see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We exist so that people might savor together the glory of God in the face of Christ. Last week, we talked about how Richland exists so that we might declare the glory of God in the face of Christ, that we want to be a church that's filled with witnesses that tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth about God, that we do that just as Jesus commanded his disciples and his church in Acts chapter 1, that they are to go and that they are to to, to declare the truth about him in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth and that they will do it through the power of the Spirit and that we, we are called to continue on in that command. That command that was given to the early church in Acts chapter 1 still applies to us today. And so we too want to declare and to be truth tellers about God. Today, as I mentioned, I want to talk about the glory of God found in the face of Christ. And as we look at the book of Acts, I want to I look at, at, at a story in Acts chapter 9 of, of Saul coming to actually see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I want to, to show you that story and remind you of that story. And then I'm going to, to take us to a passage that that person wrote, that Saul or Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that we've based our existence statement off. And then, and then I want to go back to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2 to look just real quickly at how you and I are strengthened then to continue on. So let's look first at, at Acts chapter 9. You can turn there if you'd like. 
Acts chapter 9 is page 917, if you're using a pew Bible this morning. I'm not actually going to read all of these passages, just to save us a little bit of time this morning. But you remember, if you're looking even there in your Bible at Acts chapter 9, you know that Acts chapter 9 is the conversion moment of the man named Saul. And previously, if you flip back a page or two, you'll see that Saul has, we've already met Saul. He's, he's been around. He's a Pharisee. Saul is, is a part of the, of the Jewish establishment. And Paul is two things that we saw before we come to this Acts chapter 9. Paul is a terrorist for the church. He's ravaging the church. He's dragging believers to prison. He's breathing threats and murder, it tells us in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's a terrorist against the early church, against early believers. But he's also, he's not just the worst of the worst, but he's also the best of the best. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's zealous for the traditions of the church. He's blameless under the law, he says himself. He has checked every box. He, he has done everything that he's been called to do. In fact, his desire to be the best of the best has caused him to do what we see and what we understand to be the worst of the worst. His desire to fulfill the law, his desire, his desire to be the best Pharisee and God follower that he can causes him to be a terrorist against the church, causes him to chase down early believers and to throw them into prison. It causes him to stand there as Stephen, the first martyr, is stoned and killed there in Acts chapter 8. He's both a vicious early church killer and a committed and discipled law follower. And he has this moment here in Acts chapter 9. He has this moment, this, this moment on the Damascus road where he, Saul himself, literally comes face to face with Jesus. And it comes as he's headed down to the the Damascus Road. He's headed out to try to arrest other believers and other Christians. And he wants to throw them in prison. He has a letter that gives him permission to do that. And so he heads out. And we pick it up right away in in chapter 9, verse 1. We're just going to read a little portion of it here. Saul, still bringing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and got letters for the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now he went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And so the men do bring him into the city. In this moment, this light that shines down on the Damascus Road, this light that shines on Paul, it shines on him, knocks him off of his horse, knocks him to the ground, blinds him. This light is Jesus. It is the glory of Jesus. Jesus himself says, why are you persecuting me? Light shines on Saul, and he comes face to face with the one that he's been running against, the one that he's been throwing people in prison for believing in. Saul is persecuted. 
that Saul has been persecuting Christians and now persecuting Jesus, and Jesus has called him out. And his response is, who are you, Lord? He already knows. In that instant, in that moment, Saul already knows who he's come in contact with. In fact, if you remember, Saul tells this story a couple of times in Acts. He tells it to King Agrippa later in chapter 26. He also tells it in chapter 22 to Felix. And he tells the same story. He adds a couple of different things. In the story, when he tells his testimony to King Agrippa, he says, he says that one of the things that, that Jesus says to him in this moment here on the Damascus Road is, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And the idea, as, as we shared about, as we walked through the series, this, the idea is that Paul has known all along, he's been, he's been kicking, he's been trying to, to do his own thing, but, but he's been kicking against the goads. He's been, he's been working hard to go in rebellion against what Jesus has been calling him to do. And so he cries out, who are you? And then says, as, as he says, Hundreds, thousands probably times later, what shall I do, he says. What shall I do? And he's told to rise and enter into the city. And he helplessly is carried into the city, brought into the city, and is given three days to repent, three days to think and dwell about the gravity of his sin, three days, three days to remember what Jesus has called him to. If you look on, we're not going to read it, but if you look on in Acts chapter nine, it goes on, Ananias is called to come and to, and, and, and to minister to Paul. And Ananias is called by God and right away says, says yes, I'll go, here, here I am, I'll do it. And then realizes that he's called to go to a man named Saul. And if you look in verse 15, he, Ananias says, he, he's here on the, on the authority of the chief priest. He's, he's going to bind all who call on the name of Jesus. And in verse 15, the Lord says to Ananias, but the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. Ananias is told, he is going, Saul is going, this man is going, and his job, he's an instrument of mine, I have chosen him as my instrument to go and to carry my name. To carry my name, and not just to carry it, but to suffer for the sake of it. That's the call that God gives to Saul, that's the call that Paul continues to live through. That's the, that's, the, that's the call that Paul, as we look at these epistles in these next weeks, that Paul tries to live up to, to carry the name of Jesus. As Ananias then goes to, to visit Saul there on Straight Street, touches him, his scales fail fell off of his eyes, his sight is regained, and immediately, immediately, Saul begins his journey as a believer. His, immediately, he begins his journey as a child of the king. 
He has met face to face with Jesus. He has seen the glory of God and it has changed him. And then he writes. He writes the majority of our New Testament. He writes, writes 13 different epistles that we'll start to look at next week. One of those is the book of 2 Corinthians. I want you to turn there because I want you to look through 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's page 965 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. It's the passage. It's the passage that we have used as the basis of our existence statement. It's one of the passages, but I want you to look at it this morning because I want you to see these verses. We've been walking through this existence statement through the book of Acts, but I want you to see what Paul wrote. He writes this passage to the church in Corinth about the ministry that they have as believers, that they have and that you and I have as we continue on in that journey. This is this is what we're called to be as the church. Second Corinthians chapter four, we're gonna begin in verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But to the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What's the call What do we see here in this passage that Paul, who came face to face with the glory of God on the Damascus Road, what is he writing to the church as our call? Let me just point out these things that we see and we put in our existence statement. I want you to see them in that passage so that you can can connect with them as well. We believe that Paul has called the church, he has called you and I here at the Richland Church to magnify Jesus Christ. We see that, I think, best. We see it a couple places, but I think we see it best in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as the servants for Jesus' sake. As I said, as we walked through just that phrase, I, I told you the, the Richland church, the church itself is not about you. We are all about Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. We, we are the servants for Jesus' sake. We exist to magnify Jesus Christ so that people might see. We see that in a couple of places. We talk often when we talk about that we want people to see, we have to, in order to to talk about how people see, we have to talk about how people are blind. And, And Paul Paul spells that out pretty clearly here in verses three and in verse four. He says, our gospel is veiled and it's veiled to those who are perishing. People are blinded by their sin. And the gospel 
The gospel is, is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so we, as a church, we here at Richland, we exist so that people might see, so that blinders might be removed, so that people might see their sin and they might treasure the Savior. We exist to magnify Jesus Christ so that people might see, so that people might savor. We see that a number of places, I think, in this passage. In verse 2, Paul says that, that we renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways, that we do this together. He says in verse 6, he says um, that God has shown in our hearts together the light, the, to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God. He also says that in verse 7, he says, we have this treasure, we, together, we have this treasure in jars of clay that we have found something that, that is so great that we delight in it, that we savor it, that we treasure it, that we have this treasure and together we join to do this. That we exist, the church exists, to magnify Jesus Christ so that people might see so that people might savor, and so that people might declare. That comes from verse 5, I think, as we've already looked at. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. The gospel, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Their minds are blinded by the God of this world. And so we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We declare that Jesus is Lord. And we do it all for the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's actually in a couple of times in this scripture. We see it in verse 4 that we, the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the image of God. And then he says again in, in verse 6, God said, let light shine out of darkness as it is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul says, we want people to see and know Jesus. That's, that's what we hope. That's our goal, that's our existence statement. We exist so that people might see Jesus. And for Paul, he had that experience. On the Damascus Road, he was there. He saw Jesus. Jesus himself spoke to him. He responded back directly to Jesus. He saw the face of Jesus. And so as, as, as he writes this, as he works through this, his, his hope is what he remembers from that experience, what he knows from God at work in him. But he doesn't write it to people who have had that kind of experience. The people in the church in Corinth did not have the Damascus Road experience. They did not see the face of Christ knocked off their horse, blinded by the light, Jesus speaking directly to them. Their hope doesn't come from a Damascus Road experience. Their hope comes from the upper room experience. And so I want you to look at that last passage in Acts chapter 2. 
Where does our hope for this existence statement come? Where does you and I, where does our hope for this existence statement come? It comes from Acts chapter 2. You remember it. We talked about it. We, in fact, we still talk about it often. The disciples were gathered. Jesus had ascended into heaven. He had sent them to Jerusalem and said, stay and wait for the one that I will send. And so in chapter 2, the day of Pentecost arrives and they're all gathered in one place, it says. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here, this is, this is the hope. This is the hope for the early church. This is the hope for you and I that God shows up in this room. The glory of God shows up in this room Not as a blinding light like it shows up to Paul on the Damascus Road, but it comes comes in the sound of a mighty rushing wind as God often shows up. He speaks creation. He shows up in thunder at Mount Sinai. He shows up in the sound of, of wind that comes and dwells in the temple as Solomon and brings the temple into existence and prays that God might live in that temple. He comes in the singing of angels when Jesus is born. He's going to come in the sound of a trumpet, with the sound of a trumpet, as the Messiah returns. God oftentimes shows up in sound, and he also shows up here in chapter 2 in sight. God shows up in sight at creation when he separates light from darkness. He shows up as fire to Moses at the burning bush. He shows up, he, he, he shows up as a lack of light during the, the, the plagues on Egypt. Shows up there as a lack of light in darkness as one of the plagues. He shows up as a pillar of fire to lead the Israelites. He shows up when Elijah calls fire from heaven and then even later shows up again to take Elijah home in a fiery furnace. Or fire, not furnace, but chariot. Furnace would not be a very fun way to go back. Fiery chariot. Shows up in a burning star to announce the birth of his son. And even Jesus himself turns into marvelous light as he's transfigured before the disciples. He shows up as light. And so it's no surprise in this moment that, that in this upper room that God shows up in, 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 in sound. It's no surprise that he shows up in light. He's done that over and over through the Bible. The difference here, the difference here from all of the other times that God shows up is that in verse 3 it says, there were divided tongues as fire that appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In this moment, the surprise is not that he shows up in sound. It's not surprise that he shows up in fire. It's that he shows up on each one of them. 
that this fire is divided. That for the first time, they don't have to to see God somewhere else outside of them. But now in this moment at this Pentecost, in this upper room moment, now God is at work in each believer. The Spirit has come and, 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 and has moved into each believer and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're changed. They're changed. These early believers, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about, about how, how even after Jesus ascends into heaven, they, they all just stand there and, and, and they're waiting. He has ascended into heaven, but they expect him to come back any moment, in that moment. And they're staring into the sky. And on this day, they go from staring into the sky to preaching there at the temple. They go from timid hill country folk, Galileans and the lot to becoming impassioned preachers they no longer they no longer go back to their boats but instead they become full-time gospel declaring missionaries in that moment everything is changed for those who were in that room they had found something that was so life-changing, so satisfying that they could not help but share their joy. And so they bust out of the open, of that upper room, they bust out onto the temple and they begin to declare what God has done. And they use languages that they do not know, but they just began to speak and everyone that's there in whatever language they hear in, that's what they hear the message in. The disciples speak in the language they know, The hearers hear it in the language that they know, and God does the translation somewhere in the middle. We talk, I've said this several times, you know that I say it. When we find something that we treasure, when we find something that we love, when we find something that is so satisfying to us, we can't help but share that joy with others. And in fact, Our joy is not complete until we can share it with someone else. Sharing about what we have found so satisfying makes it both more satisfying for us and helps others to find it to be satisfying as well. The glory of God begins to live in the believers. And the good news for you and I is that what started in the upper room continues on to this day. It doesn't look exactly the same. We don't hear the roar of the wind that comes through. We don't see the fire dancing on the heads of every believer. I can only speak one language. I'm guessing most of you can as well. And yet, it's still that spirit in us. That's the mystery of the gospel, Paul says in Colossians. Christ in us. That's our hope of glory. And the spirit that worked in the early church, that came and dwelt in those early believers here in Acts chapter 2, this is the same spirit that works and dwells in those who believe. And so this early church left the temple that day. They began to preach the name of Jesus And the Spirit gave them confidence to live out their faith. 
And they began to live in such a way that they magnified Jesus Christ. That people began to see, that people began to savor, that people began to declare the glory of God in the face of Christ. They did it in the early church, and it continues on as our task here at Richland. My prayer is that we are strengthened to do that, just as they were strengthened by the work of the Spirit in them, that you and I are strengthened in the same way. The worship team is going to come and lead us this morning as we close, as we sing about the greatness, the worthiness of Jesus. Let me pray as they come this morning. God, my prayer is that we might so live that the spirit that is dwelling inside of us, that works inside of us, that strengthens us, that it might strengthen us in the ways that we have seen all through as you have worked in your church, that we might, that we might see, that we might savor, that we might declare that our only hope comes through Jesus Christ, that the glory of God might ring out in us and through us as a corporate body. We pray these things this morning in your name. Amen. Please stand as we worship this morning. Worthy you are worthy, much more worthy than I know. I cannot imagine just how glorious you are And I cannot begin to tell how deep a love you bring Oh Lord, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy You're worthy to be praised Forever and a day, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy to be praised forever and a day. Glory, I give glory to the one who saved my soul. was my own, and I cannot begin to tell how merciful you've been. Oh Lord, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. You're worthy, worthy. you're worthy, worthy, you're worthy. You're worthy to be praised forever and a day. You're Your glorious name, you're worthy, you're worthy. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.